if we're speaking up about, you know, the injustice against animals, we have to be aware that, you know, the plant foods that we're eating, you know, these farm workers have to you know, go through horrible conditions. And it's not just our food, it's every product that we touch, you know, it's our laptops, it's our cell phones, it's all of these things. It's understanding that being vegan is about harm reduction. It's not a cruelty free lifestyle. We have to care about things like equitable pay, working conditions. We can't just stop at the fact like stop eating animals, period, is going to solve all of the issues. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This week on the podcast, we meet EA Bako. She's a vegan advocate, an educator, a content creator, and a social justice advocate. She works to promote the fight for collective liberation, financial, time or location for both humans and animals. Originally from Nigeria and raised in the United States, EA studied Spanish literature and international business at the Ohio State University. She currently resides in Columbus, Ohio, where she is also a member of the advisory board of Plant the Power 614, a local nonprofit organization that seeks to create a supportive plant-based community for people of African descent. Through her social media presence, the EA Loves Life platform, she shares educational insights with her followers, highlighting the black vegan experience and being a firm advocate of animal rights. Through her sensitivity and empathy, EA's intersectional look at veganism and the systems we exist within promotes a complex understanding of the issues we face as a human race today. I'm delighted to welcome EA onto the Plant-Based News Podcast to talk about her vegan journey and the important work she does for the community, especially the black vegan community, through her advocacy and activism. As always, if you do like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Hi, EA. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBM Podcast. What a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you so much, Robbie, for having me on. I'm super excited. So this podcast has been a long time running. Uh, you and I have known each other for many years. Uh, we crossed paths at a, an animal rights conference several years ago. Uh, you came over to, our, well, I wouldn't say it was a booth. It was more my table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I was sitting on my lonesome, not really knowing uh, what the heck I was supposed to do there. But um, it was really great to meet you and sort of learn about all your work and obviously, you know, find out that you had followed us and supported our work. So, you know, thank you for coming over and saying hello. Oh, yeah. I'm really glad we made that connection, too. So before we talk about all the things you're doing with your life today, let's go back in time and let's hear your vegan journey. You know, where did you discover the lifestyle and... Uh, how did it all begin for you? Well, I always grew up like most children do, compassionate for animals. But then I believe society stamps it out of us because when I was really young, I went camping and they told us about fishing, that the worms do not get hurt when they're put on the hooks and that the fish don't feel pain when they're caught. And I always found that extremely suspect and I never wanted to do the fishing. My parents brought home live catfish one time and they put the catfish in a kiddie pool. And I thought that was going to be my new pet. Lo and behold, that was for dinner. And that was very traumatizing to me. And when I was a child, I never had an interest in eating meat. But I think it gets pushed on us so much that we're like, finally, we, we give in to uh, society and into the mainstream culture. So it wasn't until very many years later that I watched a documentary called Forks Over Knives that made the connection between our lifestyle and what we eat and our propensity to contract chronic health diseases. I got two pills I take for my 
diabetes, then I got one for cholesterol, high blood pressure, and then I take Bieta, which is an injectable. I'm getting really shaky and I'm sick and I'm fatigued, and that's when they diagnosed me with hypertension and diabetes. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure costs this country more than $120 billion each year. People are saying, you're crazy. You're a cancer patient. You should be resting. Doctors told me this. When I had the second heart attack, the doctor said, I should prepare for death. And my dad, he has been a longtime patient for cancer. He has no interest in going plant-based, but seeing him suffer and knowing that I don't want myself to suffer or any other beings to suffer, I decided to go plant-based because that documentary made it very clear that while it's not going to be like 100% preventative, it can reduce your chances of, you know, contracting things like heart disease and diabetes and cancer and things like that. And I wanted to take care of myself and care for other beings. So at first I was doing vegetarian and I had the goal that I was going to go 100% whole food plant-based. And I ended up going whole food plant-based and feeling so amazing that I wanted to know what are the ethical reasons people pursue this lifestyle. I found a short video clip on YouTube called Dairy is Scary, and it educated me about what happens in the dairy industry, and I was horrified. All right, guys, so since everyone's so busy these days, I'm gonna explain to you how the dairy industry works in five minutes. Like other female mammals, cows only lactate, or produce milk, when they're pregnant or have a newborn to feed. So the dairy industry inseminates or impregnates cows starting at the age of around 12 months over and over and over again, so they keep making milk. And it's a rather routine process. You see, first the industry jacks off a bunch of bulls, sometimes using a hand or help from an electroejaculator, which is basically a giant cow dildo that goes into the anus of the bull until he blows. And that semen is collected and then inserted into the vagina of a female cow with a long tube, usually while she's confined in what the industry calls a rape rack. And sometimes they put their fist right into the anus of the female cow, you know, to loosen the area. To make the process as effective as possible. What are you, what are you feeling for in there when you, oh, it's a bit jumpy, I think I would be if someone did that to me. She's bringing it out, she massages a little bit just to relax everything and help that semen go where it needs to go. You must be responsible for a lot of calves. Yes. And when that baby cow is born, it's pretty much immediately taken away from its mother and locked in a crate because if it stayed around mom, it would drink her milk. <laughs> and that shit's for us. I made the decision to become an ethical vegan that very same day, and I have been on that journey ever since. Uh, at first, I was like, I'm doing this solely for myself and because I don't want to harm any other individuals. But then I made the decision to become an activist and, and vocal about animal rights because it's something that I, in my circles anyways, I did not hear a lot of people speaking up about. It's an incredible story and thank you for sharing. You know, it's, it's such a familiar story as well because I think when people go on a journey of, of discovery to try and figure out a problem that they've been having or something they've seen in their own families, it can be pretty shocking uh, when we sort of peer into the void of animal agriculture, but also social justice as well, to try and understand what's happening in the world. Because I think for many of us, when we grew up in the world as children, we are very shielded from all the horrors of the world. 
you know, one of my favorite stories being a Buddhist is the story of the young Buddha, who was this sort of young prince who was completely shielded from all the sufferings of life. He didn't know what was going on in the, in the, in the real world. And his father wanted to protect him from everything. And, you know, unfortunately, he snuck out of the palace gates one evening and experienced death. Um, old age and sickness and he was horrified by this and this is one of the sort of scary things of life is that when we begin to realize our own mortality by experiencing the suffering of others it really shocks us and and, and I think many of us as such as yourself and myself shakes us to make real changes it's not always easy to keep those sort of positive healthy changes consistent like we live in a world overrun by vegan junk food now which we'll talk about <laughs> but you know making these positive changes is such a is such a wonderful thing and it really empowers people to take their own health into their own hands going back to your family let's talk a little bit about your background and you know you, you do come from a very meat heavy culture don't you and you want to talk a little bit about like how meat and animal products have played a role throughout your childhood and your and your culture? Yes. Well, I'm originally from Nigeria. I was born there, but my family immigrated to the United States when I was two years old. So I don't have any memories of growing up there, but I have been back, you know, once every couple of years to visit family and um, to just experience the culture over there. So growing up, when we first moved to the United States, we moved into a very small town, not ethnically diverse whatsoever. So I grew up eating the standard American diet. But when we moved to a bigger city where I live now, um, there was more international stores. So my mom began cooking the food that she grew up eating. It's not primarily like meat focused, but meat is a part of the diet. Originally, our diet was mainly like starches, like yams and cassava and things like that. And then the side dishes are like the meat part of it. They had like fish seasoning that they add to everything. So even if it could easily be a plant-based dish to add extra protein, they'd put like a, a fish, like a kind of like a, a dried fish seasoning to the meals because meat is actually really expensive where I'm from. If you want to have meat, you have to raise your own animals. And so people would just, they would raise the animals for, for food and then they would kill them maybe for like, if it's um, a funeral, a wedding, things like that. So it's not something that's consumed like on a regular basis. We're, we're Igala, that's the name of our tribe. And the area we're from is called the Confluence. Um, so it's between two rivers. So we're really into fishing in our in our tradition. So I, I've never liked fish in my entire life. When my mom started cooking our traditional dishes with a lot of dried fish, I actually could not and would not eat it. So I always ate like the standard American diet, but traditionally our food is just a lot of green vegetables, a lot of fruit because we live in the tropics. And then like the, the meat is like very scanty. Like if you're eating a lot of meat, people are like, wow, you're a super wealthy person. Like you can afford to have meat. Most people just have like, you know, this kind of like dried fish flake seasoning that goes in the, the different dishes. And we eat a lot of the international African community sometimes calls fufu, but goes by many different names. In our um, language, we call it oje, which is the pounded yam. And we eat that with different stews, with stews and sauces and things like that. But like I said, I did not grow up eating that because the fish was added to it. So I never really liked it. That's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same the world over how meat consumption is associated with upward mobility, that there is this cultural 
view that the more meat you eat, the more wealthy and rich you are. And it's been the same in the UK and in the USA as well for many, uh, many generations that the more meat you eat, the more food, uh, the more money you have. And the China study, which is um, a very interesting study that was over, I think, a 30 plus year period, looked at the diets of the sort of working classes and it was mostly plant-based foods. And these were actually the healthiest people in the, in, in the country. Uh, because they weren't eating um, diets that were high in animal products. And when I mean, you see the sort of, you know, middle class, upper classes who, who you know, had a lot more money, uh, disposable income, they were eating a more Western style diet, which is very high in dairy, cheeses, oils, animal products. You, you saw this massive burst of heart diseases and diabetes and obesity uh, and all the other issues that come with that, like cancers. But it's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, you see how sort of cultures are affected by what you might say is a sort of imperialistic food <laughs> cultures that have spread across the world like in many ways, which can feel a bit like a cancer because they are killing people, these diets. They are destroying people's diets. But I'd love to hear your thoughts a bit on the, the intersection between diet and culture, because obviously coming from a, a very strong culture, cultural identity, diet and food is deeply entwined. Those two identities are very difficult to separate. You go to your grandma's house and you say, I don't want to eat the dish, this dish that you've prepared with the fish or the, or the goat or whatever animal product you eat. And your grandma will probably, or grandpa will probably be deeply offended or upset by that. You know, being a vegan now in, 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 a, in a passionate community and culture, you know, where your family is from, how do you have you got any words of wisdom for how you're able to sort of separate the two, still be sort of a passionate part of your, have a passionate place in your culture, but to disconnect that consumption of animals, but still have all the foods that you love? Definitely. So it is one of those things where when I travel back to Nigeria and I visit with my aunties and uncles and cousins and, you know, people over there, they are like, what do you eat? Like you, you don't eat our traditional foods and they're very curious to know like about my diet. They want you to eat like the food that they prepare and like they have so much love for our cultural cuisine and things like that. But I had explained to them basically about, you know, I started this lifestyle, you know, first of all, because of my dad's chronic health issues and like not wanting to um, you know, contract those issues myself and, you know, take better care of my health. And then I have compassion for other animals and I believe that they deserve, you know, freedom and their own autonomy and things like that. And actually they're very receptive. I know that there's some families that are just like, absolutely not. You have to eat our, you know, traditional food and there's no way around this. Like, what is this strange culture and lifestyle you're talking about? But I'm just very fortunate. Like my uncle back in Nigeria, like he loves the fact that I eat plant-based. He's always curious. He's like, I'm going to take you grocery shopping and you show me the type of things that you like eating because he wants to take better care of himself and he wants to know what he should be eating. And so he has like my cousins, like prepare the types of food that I like to eat. So, I mean, it's not much different to like veganize Nigerian meals because we're eating, you know, rice and vegetables and beans and things like of that nature. So it's just about leaving the meat part out. So when um, I was back home and they were cooking, they would just make 
the meat separately and not add it to the main dish. And I was able to eat basically what everyone else was eating minus the meat portion. And it worked out really well. Like no one took offense or anything like that. And, you know, one of my other uncles, when we would go out, he would get so excited when we would go somewhere and they have meals that are already vegan. Like they don't need to be customized or anything like that. He'd be like, you can eat this. And I'll, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. So In terms of words of wisdom, just like make it very clear the reasons why you're on this journey. Because I think a lot of times like an unfortunate pitfall that a lot of vegans make is when we talk about what we're doing, it's like we're trying to convince the other person that they have to do it or they feel like the way that you're explaining it is like you're telling them that they have to be vegan and join your lifestyle, which obviously would be ideal. But I always come at it from the angle of, you know, I found out about the horrors of the animal agriculture industry, and I didn't want to partake in that. And I know that getting plant-based is better for my health. And they get inspired by what I'm doing for myself instead of telling them what they have to do. It's such good advice. And I think people really struggle with it, don't they? Because I I think we don't want to upset our families. You know, we love our families. We don't want them to feel like we are trying to alienate them. And it can be really tricky. But just moving on to, you know, the topic of veganism as a broader conversation, it had, you know, veganism, the word was coined in the the 1940s, right, by Donald Watson. But the culture of eating animal-free foods predates that by many thousands of years. There is a, a sort of a tendency to in a sort of vegan community across the world particularly amongst caucasian vegans you could say or vegans of you know uh, we might say white vegans i when we'll talk a bit about white vegans and black vegans in a second because i'm interested to hear your thoughts on all these words and the way we describe each other but you know white veganism is a term that's been thrown around quite a lot on social media and um, you've got a guide about it on your instagram Uh, We've talked about it, but for the listeners, let's talk a little bit about like what is white veganism and why it can sometimes be a little problematic. Definitely. So it it does start from where you began about, you know, the movement of what is now known as veganism was coined in 1944 by Donald Watson and, you know, the vegan society. But, you know, in Africa and in Asia, because, you know, we live in the tropics and, you know, hot temperatures where fruits and vegetables are readily available. We've been eating, you know, plant-based food for thousands of years. So those things are not mentioned or given credit to or acknowledged in white veganism. Um, But to get into white veganism, you know, specifically, a lot of people take offense to the term white veganism because they think, oh, if you're white, you can't be vegan. And that's not what the terminology is saying at all. Here's the surprisingly black history of veganism. If your only mental picture of veganism is white ladies and Lululemon knocking back shots of wheatgrass, then you're way off. In fact, you may be surprised to find out that this new veganism trend is actually not that new. And it's not all that white either. In fact, veganism can be traced back over 2,000 years to the ancient cultures and India, the Mediterranean Basin, and, drumroll please, Africa. There is a privilege that does come with being um, identified as white in society. And we need to acknowledge the fact that there are disparities between what people can access, you know, food-wise, um, education-wise, and Uh, you know, economically because of the systemic oppression that's been put in place 
unfortunately. And you can be a person of color, you know, black, indigenous, or what have you, and practice white veganism. The terminology basically means it's a form of veganism that does not acknowledge, you know, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, anti-Semitism, all of these intersecting factors that affect your vegan identity. Because like when you come into veganism, like you, you don't get to shield or hide who you are. Like I'm still a black woman, regardless of the fact that I'm, I'm vegan. So things that people need to keep in mind in terms of like the vegan justice movement is that when I go into a, you know, a street protest for activism, I might be profiled by the police differently than my white counterparts that I'm standing right next to. So if we're going to say like veganism is an equal playing field for for everybody, people do come in with obstacles and challenges that are unique based upon their identity. And unfortunately, with white veganism, those things are ignored because everyone that's vegan is seen as a monolith. And that monolith is based on a white standard of what is considered human. And we have to come in with the mentality that you know, we live in a society that we cannot discount the fact that xenophobia exists, you know, transphobia exists, all of these phobias exist. And you bring that with you when you do your vegan activism, when you speak up for the animals, because, you know, I've heard horror stories of people being at um, vegan actions and other vegans not wanting to respect their pronouns. And to me, respecting pronouns is fundamental to who we are as compassionate individuals. I know you go by they, them pronouns. And, you know, for for someone to be at um, a compassionate space, a loving space to advocate for animals and other vegans not wanting to respect that individual, like that breaks my heart. So we can't, we can't just say that veganism exists in this vacuum and we don't have to account for all the other ways that human beings are oppressed. And that doesn't say like we're putting humans above animals. It's just saying that these are interconnected issues. You know, we live in an intersectional world where, you know, we can't talk about just go to the grocery store and buy the plant milk sitting one inch away from, you know, the dairy milk, because there are people who do not have access to, you know, these plant-based options in grocery stores. Like we talk about food apartheid, and especially in the United States where, you know, someone's closest grocery store might be more than a walking distance away, more than a bus ride away. And these issues have been created on purpose because, you know, here in the United States, we had what's called redlining and the distancing between black and white communities to make things more challenging uh, for black people. So yeah, when I first started out with veganism, I practiced white veganism because I wasn't speaking up loudly for the other ways in which human beings are oppressed and how it connects to veganism. So the word is not to trigger people and make you feel like a white guilt for being white. It's just an acknowledgement of the fact that white supremacy is the dominant force in our society and it affects all of us. Very well said and such a fantastically articulate way to explain what is a bit of a blind spot, I think, for many people as someone who presents and identifies as being a white vegan you know, I'm really, really interested in identity as well. I'm also um, identified as non-binary, but it is a exploration and it's a journey. And I think, you know, those other characteristics, we've been talking about those characteristics, are more hidden than race, for example. You know, I, I will always <laughs> present as white. You will always present as black. You can't escape that. And when a person has a racial identity, that isn't something that can be sort of tarred over, where sexuality and 
uh, gender expression, these things can be very hidden and, and sometimes kind of discounted as well in many ways. But race is something we cannot escape from. And racism and its sort of ugly, insidious nature is so ubiquitous in our society. It's everywhere. And I think people have this idealized view that when you join the vegan movement, that it'll be this sort of sunshine and rainbows and unicorns skipping in the sun and that everyone's going to be lovely and everyone's going to be nice because they all love animals. Well, listen, honey, that's not the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Very far, far, far from the truth. And there's so many things to consider with our, our vegan activism is the fact that just because someone is vegan doesn't automatically make them a good person. People are bringing in the issues that they had prior to being vegan into vegan spaces. Like, you know, sexism is a huge problem in the community. You know, the fact that there are not as many women being amplified in the movement, whereas women make up the majority of the people who are vegan. Yeah, 86% plus, I reckon, based on our numbers of PBN uh, in the vegan community are women and the rest are men. But the men, the men's voices are always the loudest. Now, do you feel like that that is not a necessarily intrinsically vegan community thing, vegan movement thing, it's more a human society thing, because we see it everywhere. We see how women are continuously pushed down, paid less, given less opportunity. As someone working, you know, to, to bring change and, and, and further these conversations, you know, what are some of the ways that men need to, or could or should step up to support women more, to, to bring the voices of women uh, and the ideas and views of women to to the foreground and, and, and allow women in? I would say that it's not a problem unique to the vegan movement. It is a societal problem. But when people step into the vegan movement, they don't leave their, their baggage behind. They come in being raised up and taught that, you know, men are the standard, that men are the dominant force of society. So what men in the vegan movement can do is pass the mic, give up opportunities, let women be on the forefront of panels, Um, you know, pay women equal for being in animal rights organizations, make sure that women have, you know, health benefits that allow them to have a family and things of that nature. In terms of like the vegan messaging, I see a lot of it being like, you know, directed towards people need to be on the streets doing, you know, a specific type of activism that is like outreach and like calling people out. Well, it's not to say that women, you know, don't participate in those types of activism too, but I find a lot of like this street outreach narrative to be male dominated. And I know this because when I joined the vegan movement, I found out about that activism through YouTube and all the people who were popular on YouTube were men and they were all doing the same type of outreach. And I did not see very many, if any women doing that type of outreach. And I know that, you know, women do like to do street outreach, but women are so complex. Like we, we like art and we like, you know, speaking in different ways that show our unique personalities and talents and things like that. And I like to see organizations that are like, we're going to make this platform in such a way that there's not just one form of activism. We want you to shine out as an individual. We want to see your authenticity as an individual. So I think it's more about, you know, creating spaces where you can be an introvert and still be a part of the movement. Like you don't have to do the same type of actions as everyone else and just allow people to be themselves. And I think that by boosting up women who want to, you know, speak about politics, 
and, you know, speak up about the areas where they're uniquely gifted. Like I know, you know, women who are conservationists and into like, you know, biology and things like that. And I would like to see more of them being lifted up for the work that they do. I, I don't often see, you know, women who are in these spaces of having influential power in certain uh, career paths that are directly related to veganism being given a mic and being given a platform. So whenever men see that there's women out there who are doing this work, just pass the mic, you know, opportunities like this, inviting me to this podcast is one of the ways that, you know, people can do that. Just spotlight women and, um, you know, give people the opportunity to have their message heard. Amen to that. And shout out to the Vegan Women Summit. Anyone listening, if you're interested in learning about all the incredible vegan women in business um, and entrepreneurship, it's a fantastic platform that is uh, shaking things up, you might say. Uh, and they just recently completed their VWS, Vegan Women Summit Pathfinder, giving away, I think, over $50,000 in funding to women-led businesses. Um, and some of the statistics on that are pretty shocking about how little investment women get. Um, and even also, even, even worse for women of color as well in business, even, even less of the pie, which is a real problem because obviously innovation can come from all sorts of areas of the world and all people should be given opportunity uh, when it comes to business and investment. The series on Netflix was called Self-Made by um, Madam CJ Walker, who created this hair care product and she made millions and she really rose up in the, in the world of business um, as an African-American many decades ago. story seems like i was born to struggle after a while i guess i just lost hope that's when my hair started falling out i'm gonna help you my hair grew back and so did my confidence maybe i could sell your product <laughs> i don't think sales is for you <laughs> colored women will do anything to look like me even if deep down they know they can't. I ain't gonna let you keep beating up on yourself, yeah? From now on, I'm doing my own hair, making my own hair grow up. Come on! Missy, I don't take orders no more. Lincoln freed me 40 years back. That's why I'm gonna pay you. And that's why you're my favorite daughter-in-law. These stories are, are not told. You don't see them or hear them anywhere. It was one of the most inspiring stories I've ever seen, uh, you know, of a, of a self-made businesswoman who completely transformed her, her life, her financial well-being by just not giving up and being a sort of courageous, you know, businesswoman in a, in a very male-driven world. So the stories out there and they just absolutely need to be elevated. But I'd like to touch a little on heroes and hero worship. You and I have talked about this a lot. Celebrity hero worship. When people of influence raise up within a community, they become influential, whatever that is, whether it's social media following, whether it's like a business or a product or a platform, a lot of people sort of look to these people and, and fawn over them and sort of, you know, see them as this sort of icon. The vegan community is not uh, immune to that type of thing. Um, we have these sort of vegan celebrities where people fall all over the likes of Miley Cyrus, who was very vocal about being vegan. She had a tattoo. She was going on Ellen DeGeneres talking about it. And then she stopped being vegan and started eating fish and, and actually then became almost anti-vegan speaking out against the community being very becoming very aggressive really yeah, about antagonistic 
antagonistic, right? So it's one thing actually quitting the the lifestyle and and kind of going about your day. It's another thing actually becoming opposite, uh, becoming opposed to it. But I'd love to hear your views on and, and your experience about the heroes and hero worship within the vegan community because you mentioned that you came into the community via youtube personalities so what's been your experience of that and how has your views changed on these these icons these people well i think it comes from the place of when we start out being vegan and because like this lifestyle is so much in the minority in society going online and looking up, you know, what, what's being done to advocate for animals. There's only so few people who are vocal and prominent in online spaces uh, that you can come across. I believe that there's so many people, you know, doing grassroots efforts that it just takes a little bit more digging to find out what's going on in your local community. But it's easy to go and, you know, pop in a YouTube search about veganism And you're going to get about like five, six faces of the same people popping up. And those are going to be the people you follow initially. So that's what happened to me. You know, I thought that I had to do like a certain type of street activism. And these are the people you have to follow. And this is the way you have to do activism. And I've never been the type of person to put other individuals on pedestals. I understand that human beings were all fallible and we all make mistakes and we're not perfect people. But I did notice that it's really sad when I started doing my local um, activism in my own area, that it was like people really wouldn't show up to demonstrations because there wasn't a popular face there, but then they would announce, oh, so-and-so is coming to this action from you know, Australia or the UK or what have you, and people show up in the masses. And that does not happen on an ordinary activism day. And I found that to be like one of the most heartbreaking things. I'm like, if we're really there for advocating for animal rights, like we've got to show up regardless of who else is coming. Like it's not these individuals that are going to be the influence that's going to, you know, stop this entire industry. Like It's a deep systemic problem. It's not going to be these, you know, popular faces that take down the system. I think that what happens is like in movies, we see people elevated as heroes, like Hunger Games and things like that. Like it's a trope throughout all of the entertainment industry that there's one specific person who's going to dismantle a huge systemic problem. But what's always happened historically through all movements, any movement throughout history that's about social justice, it's that the people work together and rose up together and their strength in numbers. So it doesn't matter how big your platform is. Like you could have a hundred people, you know, following you on Instagram, but those hundred people might listen to you more than the one million people who are following one of these, you know, influential figures because it's all about relationships. I think we need to get back to the fact that relationships matter more than statistics and having big numbers of followers and character matters a lot because I think that people stop looking at other people's character shortcomings because, oh, well, they have a big following, so they must be doing something right. But it's not always the case. Some people with the best hearts and the best ideas have very small social media platforms, but what they do in real life means the most. Amen to that. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, But on the flip side of that, you know, there are good people out there who do have large social media followings. Definitely. And, 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 you know, good can be done 
from from a social media following and it's not always easy to get it right you know i know from running pbn with klaus we've made plenty of mistakes there's plenty of things that we we've published that i'm not happy about there's plenty of things that we've that have been said on on, on behalf of our platform that i don't agree with and you know especially when you're a, a, a collective of people sometimes people within that collective can say and do things that are really in complete contrast to your beliefs and it can be very difficult and very painful to have that you know we've experienced it um you know with differences of opinions and views it's caused you know very deep um and and upsetting differences between you know friends in our circles and 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 it's been really hard because obviously i do see all sides of the story sometimes you know at the end of the day i do see the good in people and i know you do as well that you know people ultimately are just trying to do a good job and sometimes their egos and we won't name any names <laughs> their egos become so huge and overinflated that their own sense of self-importance eclipses the mission the the the, the movement that the reasons that they became the vegan activists that they are uh, I'm not talking about any person in particular. I'm talking about just that type of archetype, right? When a person gets a big following, they have lots of adoring fans, and then people are falling all over them and, you know, telling them how amazing they are, and they cannot do anything wrong. You know, when you have, I call it nodding dog syndrome. You know the nodding dog on the on the back of the car? That's I like, do, I do. <laughs> you know, when you have a circle of friends around you that do that, and they never challenge you and they never say to you, listen, buddy, that's just not on. That behavior is inappropriate. It's problematic. It's it's causing trauma. You know, stop it. Like if you don't have those people around you, that is a problem because your ego can become so overinflated that when you are sort of acting in a cavalier way on social media, saying and doing whatever you want uh, without any consequence, it's problematic. And I think that's where the celebrity can be a problem, right? You have these very well-paid celebrities who get paid millions of pounds or dollars to do the jobs that they do. And they have a lot of people running around them like headless carrots and no one will challenge them even when they're behaving in the most horrendous way. So again, it's not necessarily a vegan community thing. It is a societal thing that this celebrity hero worship that we have in our society, it's been happening since the dawn of time, I guess, that people who become famous in a city, in a village, in a tribe, whatever, they can become revered, right? And people become afraid of them. But this is where social justice comes in. <laughs> we as individuals hold a lot of unique power with our voices, with our minds, with our ideas. Let's talk a bit about social justice. What does it mean to you, firstly? And what does social justice look like in your daily life? Like, what are you doing that you feel is, is giving you that sense of purpose when it comes to social justice? Yeah, so social justice has been like one of the passions of my life because, you know, I do like I come into this world, you know, as a black woman, knowing the fact that, you know, in society, regardless of like my intelligence and my abilities and things like that, that I am looked down upon because of the social hierarchy that was put in place long before my time. So I have empathy for other individuals who have been put down and marginalized by society. So I've always wanted to speak up against things that are happening against, you know, people who have disabilities and, you know, my dad, you know, him struggling with having a stroke and cancer and things like that. Like people who have disabilities is heavy on my mind. 
you know, what's happening in terms of like the anti-Asian hate that spiked up because of the COVID pandemic, you know, what's happening with, you know, transphobia and the fact that, you know, trans people have been excluded from sports. Like there are so many things going on in our society that sometimes it does, you know, start to become overwhelming. But I've always been passionate about these issues because I know at the end of the day, if I want to be liberated as a Black woman, I have to stand up for, you know, the other people who are marginalized and discriminated against in our society. So social justice, uh, to me, it just means, you know, being a compassionate individual, caring about these issues, and speaking up when you see an injustice happening anywhere in the world. But I want to say this with the caveat that you don't have to be necessarily every single day vocal about every single cause that's going to just lead to burnout and things like that. So you have to be, you know, taking your mental health into consideration. So like what things I'm doing, like on a regular basis is informing myself, like I want to know what's going on in different communities. Like I'm, I'm black, but I'm very interested in what's going on in terms of, you know, the anti-Asian hate crimes. I'm very interested in, you know, what's going on in terms of disability justice and, and other things of that nature. So for me, it's a matter of being educated and aware and then pitching in ways that I can, you know, signing petitions, raising awareness for different causes, learning about things like mutual aid and just helping our neighbor out. You know, people always think that there has to be some massive grand campaign to be a helpful person in society. Like, I don't think we can individually uh, topple the system, but we can definitely help our neighbor out. We can definitely um, be a part of the change in the ways that are available to us to access in our community. You know, one of my friends, you know, they love to create, you know, campaigns in our community in terms of like going on feeding people and collecting food and things like that. And, and they're, they're vegan. They run a vegan organization, but it's about mobilizing our community to go and help people, you know, in our local, our local neighborhood. And I think that's where it starts. Like, you know, don't get this grand idea in your head that you're going to solve these problems by yourself or that you're too small to solve these problems. Like we can each chip away at this, you know, the system of capitalism and overconsumption and the fact that we put so many people down in our society. We just have to just focus on doing our own little part. Very well, very well said. Um, with that in mind, though, there are so many injustices in this world. Everywhere you look, every country, every culture, there's so many that it can be very overwhelming. There's the conflicts in Israel between the Palestinians and the Israelis, the transgendered men and women being murdered in South America regularly. There is the gun, horrific gun crime and the, 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 the killings of many black individuals in the USA by police. There's just a, a list as long as my arm of, of injustices. How do you avoid becoming overwhelmed and jumping from one injustice to the next and using social media to sort of just, you know, we might say bandwagon, it's not the nicest of words, but like kind of jump on and give your outrage about every single thing and sort of leave it at that. Like how do we, as social justice advocates, how, how do we become effective by you know, using these tools, using these social platforms to educate and inspire without sort of being burnt out and just sort of you know, jumping from, from subject to subject without a lot of nuance and understanding about each one and all the, the nuances and the sort of idiosyncrasies of each injustice or conflict. I would say the number one thing is to have boundaries 
And to make it very clear to your community, especially if you're advocating in online spaces that you're not an expert, that you're just somebody who's lending their voice to a particular cause and not feeling the pressure of having to be performative. And what I mean by performative, like everything we put on social media is performative, but I mean performative in the sense of this is happening in South America, this is happening in Africa, and there's a meme going around. So I have to share it because I have to show that I also care about these things. It's perfectly okay to learn about things offline. We've been doing that way before the internet. So it's okay to like learn about these things offline and not post anything. And when questioned about it, I don't think that we have to necessarily, we owe our community a response on every single issue that's going on in the world. You could just simply tell people like, yeah, I'm aware of this. You know, this breaks my heart. This is something that I'm learning about. I don't personally feel comfortable enough to post this online because I don't know enough. I think that there's this thing in society where it's like, you're not quote unquote woke if you don't share everything that you're doing offline online. And that's far from the case. The most intellectual, compassionate people I know, some of them don't even have social media accounts. Some of them don't even have social media followings and they're still doing the absolute most in their own life. So it's about reminding people that what's on social media is a very small picture of what you care about and what moves you. And I think in terms of what you do share on social media is things that you know will be helpful, like petitions, but that you've researched really well and making sure that the money or um, the, the organization that's being supported is in the right. And also it's just about you know sharing things that you've looked at really well to make sure that information is valid and accurate. And if you don't have time to do the research, just, just don't share it. Because a lot of times we're sharing misinformation that does a lot more harm than good. So I think it's about being judicious and being extremely picky about the social justice topics that you post about online, while still getting in, involved and interested as, in as many causes as you can offline. Like There's no limit to how much you can learn, but at the same time, take care of your mental health. Don't feel like you know it's doomsday all the time because if you're constantly in a state of everything is going on wrong in the world you're not going to be effective at doing any form of advocacy mm, absolutely there is a lot of beauty in the world to be to be had and to be seen and to be enjoyed there's obviously a lot of horror as well and we do need to look after ourselves moving on to the next topic is uh, total liberation um, it's a term you use uh, a lot and we've talked about it a lot in the past firstly what is total liberation within the context of veganism what does that mean for you and your advocacy? To me, total liberation is just the understanding of the fact that all issues of oppression are interconnected. So as much as I care about, you know, justice for animals, I care about justice for human beings as well. And there is a quotation that, you know, none of us are free until all of us are free. So that's total liberation to me. And how that looks like in the vegan space is understanding the fact that when you're eating anything, it doesn't matter if you're eating a banana, it doesn't matter if you're eating a carrot. Um, we live in a capitalistic system and somebody was marginalized and oppressed and, you know, probably not pay it, you know, fair compensation for the meal that appears on your table. So um, if we're speaking up about, you know, the injustice against animals, we have to be aware that, you know, the plant foods that we're eating, you know, these farm workers have to you know, go through horrible conditions. It's not and it's not just, you know, our food, it's every product that we touch, you know, it's our laptops, it's our cell phones, it's all of these things. It's understanding that being vegan is about harm reduction. It's not a cruelty-free lifestyle. 
So we have to care about things like equitable pay, working conditions. We have to care about the fact that slaughterhouse workers, you know, have one of the highest rates of, you know, mental illness because of like the dangerous job that they do and the fact that they have to, you know, kill other living beings and how traumatic that is. Um, and amplify the fact that in our society, we need um, more mental health resources. We can't just stop at the fact like, stop eating animals, period, is going to solve all of the issues. We have to also work on these issues from inside and outside the system. We have to look at, you know, taking political action, working within corporations like you've talked about before, getting these big companies on board to, you know, make better decisions that support, you know, a livable planet. So I think total liberation to me is just looking at issues from all angles and finding ways that we can participate without oppressing others. Like we don't want to duplicate the same oppressive systems that exist in mainstream society and bring that into veganism. We want to come at veganism with the perspective of my lifestyle isn't perfect, but here are things that I can do to support other individuals so that, you know, they can live a plant-based lifestyle. They can minimize harm and things like that, but we're not going to be able to do that if we're silent about when people are being marginalized and oppressed in areas that you may not think are related to veganism. But if we're having a housing crisis, how is that person going to be able to cook vegan food? So you can see how it's related right there. I'd like to turn the conversation to the topic of misanthropy, which is, you know, aka also known as human hating or the hatred of humanity. For many vegans across the world, adopting this lifestyle often comes with misanthropy, a realization that our species is potentially, you know, innately parasitic in nature, that our tendency to destroy and kill and annihilate is something to be deeply ashamed of and deeply, you know, shameful of. And a lot of people develop very strong misanthropy where it's a focus on animal liberation to the exclusion of everything else that human humanity doesn't matter, that humanity should be exterminated, annihilated. We know from our conversations with Dr. Melanie Joy that this does this type of mentality can lead to terrible depression and self-loathing and many really sort of debilitating feelings about ourselves. You've experienced this behavior in the community. What are your some of your thoughts on what, you know why it continues to happen and, and do you feel like there are any solutions to try and help move people away from this self-loathing and the self-hatred i think it's when people become exposed to seeing the horrors of what happens in the animal agriculture industry and the scale of what happens there is a propensity to hate human beings because we see human beings being the cause of all these ills in the world but i think i want to go back even further than that to the fact that you know indigenous communities have been living in harmony with nature and taking as little as possible you know since you know time and memoriam so the issue of this over-extrapolation of resources and exploitation of other individuals really boomed with, you know, colonization. So we have to, you know, take into account that a lot of these systems of oppression are happening more in, in more modern society than they, they did in the past. And that's not to say that, like, all indigenous communities were, you know, perfect and things were going on smoothly in society. We know that there's been many conflicts in society and things haven't always been perfect, but like the real major like explosion of when, you know, things started to go wrong in my purview in the world is when Western civilization invaded other countries and changed their culture, changed their diet and things like that. And then we see when people become mis misanthropists, they blame these problems on everyone 
as though humanity itself is flawed. I think humanity has had some great moments where we have, you know, lived harmoniously um, in this planet and taking care of our neighbors, taking care of other animals and things like that. So I think it's about reconnecting to who we are as human beings and the fact that most of us are already vegan inside. I think a lot of these misanthropic vegans feel like nobody cares about animals because maybe their their mom and dad still eats meat or something like that, or their their family members still eat meat. So it's like they see other people as the enemy, like they're they're the the murderers, they're contributing to animals being murdered and things like that. But people have had this mentality of, you know, eating meat is the only way or the right way for so long. It's gonna take a long time for people to also unlearn that. So it's about having understanding of the history of where all of the things went wrong in in society and how we can get back. We can't necessarily reverse it and go back to square one, but we can take the lessons that we've learned from how humans have historically treated the planet in good ways and not see human beings as an enemy because if we cause the problem, we're also the solution. That's the way I see things. And we can take the lessons, you know, of these indigenous communities who are, you know, consistently, you know, taking care of, you know, the water, the land and things like that, and how we can bring their practices, you know, into our practice of veganism as well, because a lot of times vegans get blamed for being anti-indigenous. I'm not sure if you've seen that a lot or when veganism is brought up, they're like, oh, you must hate indigenous people. And that's absolutely very far from the case. I think it's all about everything to me goes back to education and being aware of the fact that it makes more sense to love love other people because we haven't always been being our entire life. Um, you know, we came from a place of being very indoctrinated into what the mainstream um, psychology is around eating other animals that we have to slow down and be like, not everybody else has the same knowledge. Not everyone has the same sense of compassion because Sadly, like I mentioned, you know, when we're very young, it's stamped out of us. Like I was like completely against eating animals when I was a very young child, but then, you know, ended up eating animals because like, it's just in a, in a sense shoved down your throat. Um, but I believe everybody has compassion and we can go back to being those compassionate individuals who align our actions with our values. So it's just going to take a little bit of work to convince those misanthropic vegans that human beings are not the problem. The systems are the problem. What we're being taught and indoctrinated is the problem. Um, the ongoing legacy of colonization is the problem. Capitalism is the problem. So identifying the real causes instead of just pointing fingers and playing the blame game. Very well said, very articulate and very well put. Thank you for that. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, <laughs> naturally you don't eat the pig because you're vegan. But if I gave you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you? All right. So one vegan dish, man, this is a hard one because I can never choose between pasta and tacos. Let's just say for the sake of argument today, we're going to go with like um, a delicious vegan carbonara, lots of carbs. And then one music item. What am I obsessed with right now? I don't know. I've kind of been listening to like old school, like throwback, like panic at the disco for some reason. I, I don't think I could survive like with it on a desert island. It's like, it's just a phase that I'm going through, but let's just say that one for sake of argument. What was the last one? A book? And a book. 
I'm going to have to say Smarter in Seconds by Blair Imani. I just started reading that, and I think that um, she's a fabulous author and educator, so definitely that book. Amazing. Ms. E.A. Baco, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I feel like we're going to need to do a part two because social justice and all the various areas of focus that we both love to talk about. There's a lot more to discuss. So we'll definitely have you on for another episode, but it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been my pleasure. And yeah, I would love to do this again. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is the PBN Podcast and I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. I'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, and everything in between.